This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello to everyone, and welcome to Self Work. This is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas for 27 years and have been doing therapy here since 1993. But I'm so glad you've joined me today. Again, I did a special episode of podcast this week in order to address the anxiety and fear and grief of the people who are on the front lines, our doctors, nurses, paramedics, all of those people, first responders of any kind, and to each and every one of us who are facing feelings and experiences that we have never had before. So you are in my thoughts. If I can help in any way, if you would like a podcast on something specific, please email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. But I also know that we need to distract ourselves and talk about things other than a virus. So I thought today that I'd talk a little bit more about what's new with Perfectly Hidden Depression. What I mean is what I've learned since I wrote the book and published it. Just because I've written a book about it doesn't mean that I'm through with learning, that's for sure. In fact, one thing that I realized when I turned it into the publisher for the last time was that it was highly likely that as soon as it was printed, I'd be learning and figuring out new things. And sure enough, with each person that I've heard from or has joined my practice because of my writing about Perfectly Hidden Depression or from the podcast hosts that have been generous enough to have me on, I keep learning. So I thought I'd share those things and perhaps remind listeners of just what Perfectly Hidden Depression is. My first podcast on it was very long ago. So we'll take each trait or characteristic and I'll let you know what more I've learned about since writing the book. In fact, I have been concerned about how folks that might identify with perfectly hidden depression are handling the current COVID-19 outbreak. If they can't reveal their vulnerability, if they have to be there for others and not admit their own fear or frustration, they could very likely feel even more lonely than normal. So if you're a perfectionist and you struggle to express your painful emotions, in fact, you might not even say, oh, I'm not a crier, then we'll chat a bit about what you could do, but realize that this is a time for all of us to be open about what we fear because when we walk through that vulnerability, we'll find our courage. I'm also going to use several emails that I've gotten, all of which have wanted to talk about their discovery of perfectly hidden depression. And of course, I learn even more from you. And it's so exciting to hear that people are benefiting from reading and hearing about it. So let's sit back and talk a little bit more about perfectly hidden depression. When I came up with the term perfectly hidden depression in April of 2014, I started writing about it and challenged myself to think, now, what exactly do I think this is? It was almost a year before I came up with a list of the 10 traits Because the more I wrote about it and the more people wrote into me about it, the more I began to learn and actually identified certain characteristics that I thought were very common. Perfectly hidden depression is a syndrome as I think about it, not a diagnosis. A syndrome like codependence is probably the most famous syndrome. Behaviors and beliefs that are often found together, like salt and pepper, red hair and freckles. So let's go over these 10. 
First, if you identify with perfectly hidden oppression, you're highly perfectionistic and have a constant critical and shaming inner voice. You know, shame isn't the same as a good conscience, and not all perfectionists shame themselves. So what have I figured out that's new about this particular trait? When you think about striving for excellence, it's different from perfectionism. I've realized that the first is usually much more process-oriented. I can strive for excellence and be very aware of the goal I'm driving for, but I can also enjoy the experience. I trust my innate desire to do well, and although I work very hard, I can stumble. I can even fail. And although difficult to handle, since I see it as a process, then I can accept that. With perfectly hidden depression, you'll be much more goal-oriented. What keeps you focused isn't trust in your innate energy and drive, but having to meet others' expectations to shield yourself from that shaming voice. This, of course, varies from person to person, but researchers back this up with three different varieties of perfectionism being identified. There's self-oriented perfectionism, which is striving for excellence, other-oriented perfectionism, which is when you expect perfection from others, and then the most dangerous kind, socially prescribed perfectionism. And my bet is that many people who experience perfectly hidden depression will find themselves in this latter category. Dr. Gordon Flett, an expert in perfectionism, says these folks feel like, the better I do, the better I'm expected to do. You feel as if you simply cannot, you will not, let others down or disappoint, because the shame would be unbearable, or so you tell yourself. The second trait of perfectly hidden depression is that you demonstrate a heightened or excessive sense of responsibility. These are the folks, and you may be one of them, that are always volunteering. You never sit down. You're always working. You always have your hand up in the air to volunteer. It's not that you can't be fun, but playtime comes after everything on the checklist is taken care of. So what's new here? In working with my own patients with this syndrome, I'm gaining more appreciation of how this impacts their relationships, especially their spouses. What may have been understood as drive begins to take a toll, and the most patient of spouses tire of emails being answered late in the night or weekends not really being days off, but more time to get things done. When I suggest that perhaps they turn their phone off when they walk in their door at night, a quick panicked look comes on their face. And there can be a lost feeling at first. But then, that's also a very tangible change to make, and one that usually brings with it a combination of anxiety and relief. The third trait is that you detach from painful emotions by staying in your head and actively shut those emotions off. In fact, if you identify with perfectly hidden depression, pain is something that's been stuffed away in some box somewhere back in the far recesses of your mind, sort of like a closet full of emotions or memories you don't want to experience, or you've even denied. I had one woman tell me, if whatever I'm dealing with is too big for the box, I make a bigger box. Also, researchers have found that perfectionists can describe feelings. They can say, yes, I'm so sad we have to move. But cry, show emotion, rarely. They struggle to express emotion, really any emotion. Because when you cut off the painful end of the spectrum, you also risk cutting off the most joyful end. One person told me, I really haven't felt much about anything for quite a while. So again, what's new in my understanding? I'm often reminded now of just how hard it can be to connect with emotional pain long suppressed. A man comes to mind immediately who told me he couldn't remember the last time he cried, not even when his mother died. But then he began talking about how he'd handled her imminent death, 
that she never told him she loved him or what he'd meant to her. This wasn't new behavior. Nothing painful in their family was ever talked about. But he felt as if he missed saying goodbye. He said all this very dry-eyed. So I challenged him to sit very still the next time he was alone and think about what he might have wanted to say. He came back to the next session, smiling. I did my homework, and he began to tell me what it had been like for him to sit on a plane and feel a tear slip down his cheek. He also said, It's just as amazing that I had a self-help book in my hand whose title included the word depression. (laughs) That would never have happened a few months ago. That was pretty funny. The fourth trait is worry and a need to control yourself and your environment. These two traits are something I think a lot of people have always associated with perfectionism, worry and a need for control. And that's probably the factor that almost everybody who identifies with perfectly hidden depression will tell me, I've got to stay in control. But what is new to me is something I heard from one of the therapists who interviewed me, and she said, when I thought about perfectionism as a psychologist, I've always thought about it as linked with anxiety, but never with depression. And then here's a quote from a recent email. She says, In my early years as a psychologist, I'd come across many documents on perfectionism and their links with depression, but it wasn't until I read your book that I finally realized why they never quite seemed right to me. The reason was that they never went deep enough. They simply focused on self-worth, being dependent on unrelenting standards, but never described why those unrelenting standards existed. Your book has finally answered that question for me. I always read those texts in a very cognitive behavioral manner. Change your unrelenting standards and your problem will be solved. Well, gee, why didn't I think of that? Because it's not that easy. The unrelenting standards are coping mechanisms that deserve time and attention. They deserve to be listened to and explored. It is only then can we see that the masks we wear have been there for a reason. And when we're ready, we need to start peeling away that mask and replacing it with more effective coping mechanisms. We can't just simply change our standards. We need to lean into them, act with curiosity, and be kind to ourselves. After all, we're all perfectly imperfect. I got chill bumps when I read this because, again, she's describing so eloquently what I hoped the book would offer to people. That to know something exists and to be aware of it is one thing. To know what it's going to take to change it is something else. And as she stresses, you have to understand that you're asking yourself to give up something that has been there for you and is there for a damn good reason. The fourth trait is to intensely focus on tasks using accomplishment to feel valuable. One of the sources where perfectionism gets started is when a child feels as if their accomplishment gets them attention and love. They're valued for making others proud, if they're valued at all. So they continue with that major task orientation rather than simply knowing their value innately. All of us like to be known for our strengths. It's not that. But for someone experiencing Ph.D., there's a belief that without that accomplishment, without maintaining the level of expectation that they've met in the past, they're failing. That's, again, that socially prescribed perfectionism that we were talking about. Just think if you got all 100 math problems right on a test, and then you thought others would see you as failing if you ever missed one again. Just last week, I was working with a patient in her 30s who quite proudly told me that she'd introduced downtime in her highly regimented workout routine. She used working out to help her feel valuable, and at first she'd had to do it daily, 
Then when she began reading that perhaps she needed to give herself a break, she would take off Wednesdays and give her muscles a rest. Somewhat playfully, I said that was really good progress, but I asked her to consider something else, that she would put seven pieces of folded paper in a glass jar, each with a day of the week on it, and then each week pick one piece of paper, and that would be the day she'd take off from exercising. She looked at me as if I'd asked her to do something atrocious. Oh no, I couldn't do that. You can see the rigid focus on tasks. She couldn't fathom feeling okay about herself if she loosened her grip and introduced more spontaneity, even if it was planned spontaneity. The next trait we'll talk about, the tendency to focus on the well-being of others while not allowing them into your inner world. People will talk about and be grateful for what a great and sincerely caring friend you are. But then your friends might realize that you rarely have ever talk about your own struggles. I'm fine, really, you say. And then promise them earnestly that you'd tell them if you weren't. You actually have no intention of doing that, but you say it to get the spotlight off of you. In fact, I heard from one of you, and I quote, Over 35 years, I've tried many things, read many books in an effort to understand why I struggle so much and have mental health issues. It's been exhausting and debilitating. I hide in shame, and most people who know me have no idea. As I said in the intro, I'm actually quite concerned for people in the next few weeks and months who will not allow themselves an outlet for the fear they feel and spend all their time helping others. I've grown in appreciation for how well these people look on the outside and often have excellent self-care externally. They go to the gym, they eat right, but internally there's little self-care. The next trait is someone with PhD discounts personal hurt or sorrow and struggles with self-compassion. I can't tell you how many times a PhD patient will say things like, I'm afraid I'm just taking up your time and your other patients need you more, or I'm not really sure why I'm here, or I don't think what happened to me is all that bad. I feel like I'm just complaining. There is little to no self-compassion or acknowledgement of the pain they've experienced or even how their present-day lives are affected by that past. When I wrote the book, I mainly focused on the fact that self-identified PhDers would let no one into their inner world. And that's still true. But they're not focused at all on their inner needs, the needs that don't show to others. PhDers are tuned out of their own internal monitoring system. Again, talking more deeply, what does that mean? Internal self-care. Sounds like psychological hogwash in many ways. What I mean is that you're self-aware enough to know when you're tired or lonely or hungry or hyped up, and you pay attention and care for your needs as you would someone else's. That's internal self-care. The eighth trait is the fact that you may have an accompanying mental health issue, such as an eating disorder, panic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, or addiction. These disorders are diagnoses, illnesses or disorders that can develop in your life. They all have aspects of control or needing escape from anxiety, and they often can be found alongside someone struggling with perfectionism. Usually, in fact, they are what often brings someone into therapy at all because they're experiencing panic. They're developing an addiction to Valium or Xanax and can't sleep without it, or they've gotten into a new relationship and need to stop purging. Notice the motivation there. It's only because the purging might affect the relationship that it warrants attention. And something else to keep in mind, when you actually begin to try to change by reading the book or just listening to podcasts or whatever, those 
co-occurring disorders can worsen because your anxiety goes way up. So it's important to know if they exist and not just call everything, oh, that's my perfectly hidden depression. That's a mistake. I also had a patient of mine point out that I didn't talk about ADD in the book and the ability for some with ADD to hyper-focus on things and to look very driven when they do. It's an excellent point. I don't know a lot about ADD, so I missed talking about it. I've also heard from Enneagram people and the Myers-Briggs folks that there are personality configurations that sound a lot like PhD. In fact, I mentioned one of them in a recent podcast. So since I wrote the book, I probably should have done a little bit more digging about that. The ninth trait or characteristic of PhD, perfectly hidden depression, is that you believe strongly in counting your blessings as the foundation of well-being. There's a concept called rigid positivity. Maybe you know someone or are someone who seems to never have anything to complain about, always sees the bright side of things, or even believes that you have no right to see what may be difficult in your life because you should be grateful for all the good things that have been given to you or you've created. And gratitude is wonderful, you bet. But it can become a problem when it's rigidly held in place, when things that are more difficult or painful aren't expressed or even allowed. I have come up with another metaphor since I wrote the book. For some reason, I'm always drawn to metaphors that are about water. And I like to think about this as sort of your life as a swimming pool and that people with PhD are more swimming around in the shallow end, not realizing or not even wanting to see that there's also a deep end. And it's all the same body of water. It may be scarier to swim around in the deep end, but it doesn't mean you can't swim back to the shallow end when you need to stand up and find your stability, and they can both exist in your life. The last trait is that you may enjoy success within a professional structure, but struggle with emotional intimacy in relationships. I recently did a small talk with around 20 or 25 women, but I was aware that I was talking to people who work in a very driven world. It's very busy, and it's very competitive, with hours spent at the home office. Again, we did not discuss that. I just gave my presentation on perfectly hidden depression. So often, people who are perfectionists are really good at what they do, and they get rewarded for it big time. And so it can fuel its existence for years. But what about emotional intimacy? Who do perfectionists pick as their partners? And not just perfectionists, but people who are hiding any kind of struggle. You're likely to pick someone who's just like you and keeps things on a fairly superficial but perfect-looking level. Again, that shallow end of the pool. Or you choose someone who wants an over-functioner in their life because they're an under-functioner. They want you to do all the work. They want you to take all the responsibility. That sounds a bit like narcissism. Or you could pick someone who also avoids conflict. You may work well together as parents or in a business, but there's no true vulnerability. But since I wrote the book... I've come to understand that something I just touched briefly on are the people who are drawn to partners who do love them well, but who are suffering because they want a greater sense of intimacy and vulnerability, but they cannot get it from you. I've talked to several people who recognize their spouse is fitting the criteria for perfectly hidden depression, and they wonder how to introduce the subject to their partner or parent or friend. This is usually triggered because they've seen their loved one go through something very difficult, but there'd been little to no emotional reaction. They may be a perfect parent or an awesome grandparent or friend, 
but it begins to dawn on them that they themselves are getting lonelier because meaningful back-and-forth honest discussions don't happen or rarely happen. And if something slips out, the phd will quickly retreat into hiding. My advice is that you can approach with kindness, sending them a blog post or a podcast. Give them plenty of room to have a private reaction. Then back that action up with, I see this in you, or I think I do. What do you think? Again, trying to give them space to think about it, to consider it, to wonder what you've seen in them. It may scare them that you've seen it, but they also may welcome your feedback if they're ready. So I hope that recap is helpful to you. Again, I'm always going to be learning about perfectionism and depression. And if you have any comments or concerns, please email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. In the listener email today, I'm going to quote two emails whose questions were similar. One person asks, While I know that my parents likely had aspects of anxiety and depression, I'm curious to know if you've seen or suspect that perfectly hidden depression can carry on through generations. And another person writes, I'm a 33-year-old doctor from Costa Rica. I've dealt with severe depression and anxiety since childhood. But the funny thing is, I didn't even know I was struggling, not even during psychiatry classes in med school. Actually, I thought I was pretty normal and life was pretty good, except for that gut feeling you mentioned. Now that I read about PhD, I see my own reflection in the stories you post, and it's helping me to understand my story better. When I told my mom about my phobias in childhood, and she said, seems like someone needs a psychologist just to make me feel ashamed about opening up. When I told her about a family member touching me, she told me I'd better keep it quiet so no more trouble would be done. Even today, she tells me that we have to ignore the negative and put our better face on because she can't stand negative people. Everything is starting to slowly make sense, which makes it a little bit easier for me. So you can see in these two stories, one woman is beginning to realize that her parents probably had some form of perfectly hidden depression and wants to know if you can learn it. And obviously the second person is realizing that her mother was a huge model for her and that she picked up on doing the same thing that her mother had done. So yes, our parents model for us how to handle sadness, how to handle happiness, how to handle all kinds of emotional functioning. And one of those messages may be you're not allowed to speak of pain or fear or sadness or of anything that is unwelcome. And since you learn that, you carry it forward. It's so important for us to understand that we are modeling vulnerability for our kids. And if we don't talk about ours, how can we expect them to talk about theirs? Once again, thank you for being here at Self Work. You know, since I'm a therapist, I often gain a perspective of how good my life is and how grateful I am for the many blessings that I do have. And certainly in this time with COVID-19 emerging as such a threat, we all are very grateful for our blessings. I'm grateful that you're here, grateful that you've given me feedback about how I can be helpful to you or how I have been helpful to you, and I'm very honored by that. I will mention that Perfectly Hidden Depression is available now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble if this particular episode has turned some light bulbs on for you. 
and it's available in ebook form as well. Thank you for being here. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.